Pogatov, today's daf is Kufyud Bet, Babakama 112, and we pick up at the bottom of Kufyud Aleph Amud Bet, and it's Amar Mar, and I should say that I am recording this uh, daf um, during the Shiva for my nephew Maoz Morel, um, who passed away on Monday, uh, died defending Am Yisrael and Medina Yisrael um, as a paratrooper in this horrific war that we've been fighting since October 7th. And uh, may this learning be in his memory and for Ilui Nishmato. Okay, we pick up three lines from the bottom on Kofid Aleph Amudbet, Amar Mar. And we're dealing with uh, this issue about the Mishnah, about Hagozel Machil, somebody who steals and uh, feeds to his sons, or then leaves the um, Aveda um, for his children. Um, and uh, the Mishnah says that they are exempt, but if it's something of Achrayt Nechassim, they're Chayev. And uh, a little vague what a chayt means. And we actually have two key positions that we're working off of in this whole discussion. The position of Rav Chizda, that um, if somebody uh, damages or eats somebody else a, a stolen object before Yeush, they're obligated to pay. So, so that's one position, um, which means that the uh, case in the Mishnah where Gozel and Ma'achil et Banav, um, that the children are exempt has to be for him a case of after Yeish. So that's one key position, whether when the second party comes and eats and consumes it, are they exempt even before Yeish or only after Yeish? The second key position that we're dealing with um, is the position of, um, of a Rabbi, um, Rabbi Barchama, who says that, um, which is the position that when somebody inherits something, is it considered like a shino rishus? Um, and that's relevant for the second part of the Mishnah, which is that if he, the father leaves it in front of them, they're exempt. And the simple sense of the Mishnah is that we are talking about something that is the gzela end, that the object is still around. And nevertheless, they don't have to return it. What's the logic? How could it be they don't have to return the object if it's still around? And for this... Um, uh, Rami Barhama says, well, because it's a Shina Rishos and we would be talking about after Yeush, and therefore they would be exempt. So again, the question, first of all, is why are they exempt in the first part of the Mishnah for eating it? Could be before Yeush, and it's already the owner does not have a strong enough ownership to obligate them, or according to Rav Chizda, only after Yeush. Why are they exempt in the second part of the Mishnah? That would be because it's after Yeish and Rishus Yoresh is Kirishut Lokeach. Um, and if you don't agree to either of those, either that it's talking after Yeish or that Rishus Yoresh is Kirishut Lokeach, you would have to explain the reason that they're exempt in the second part of the Mishnah is that they actually consume the Gezela. It is not Ben. Um, it, then the only difference is whether they ate it in the life of their father or after the life of the father. So those are the two key positions, Rav Chizda and Rami Barchama. Now the Gemara says like this, Amar Mar, we are now five lines from the bottom, um, uh, one, two, six lines from the bottom, two, two words before the end of the line, in Kuf Yudal from the Bet. And we're looking at the bright of Rabbi Oshaya, and the bright of Rabbi Oshaya made it clear that when the gazela was, was around, they had to return it. Um, so let's take a look. Amar Mar, um, when the gazela is no longer around, it's been consumed, they're exempt. So, Neymatavi Tiufta, which is also the simple sense of our mission. Neymatavi Tiufta, 
Ad Rav Chizda. Let's say this is a contradiction of Chizda, because maybe we would be talking about all cases, even before Yehosh. We're talking about after Yehosh. Okay, just like the Mishnah. The case of the Mishnah where if they ate it, they're exempt, is after Yehosh. Now let's look at the second part. Again, this is the Brighta, which is also the simple sense of the Mishnah. If the Gzela is still around, they have to pay it. Name it after Tuf to Dorami Bar Let's say that would be a problem on Rami Bar because he said that Rishus Yorish is Rishus Lokeach, and I'm sorry, and um, and therefore it should be Yerush and Rishus. I'm sorry, this is not like the Mishnah. The Mishnah says that even if it was around, they're exempt to pay to give it back, and that is Rami Bar Chama Yerush and Rishus. But the Brayta of Rabbi Oshaya says that if the Gzela is around, they have to give it back. Isn't that a contradiction to Rami Bar Chama? We don't say Yerush and Rishus that Rishus Yorish is not like. Okay, top of Kufi Betamanahalev. No, we're talking about before Yeyush. All right, so an argument that you um, have to pay when they eat it, you know, or don't have to pay, is the question of is the exemption when they consume it even before Yeyush or only La'ach Yeyush? But Bechizda would say only La'ach Yeyush. And then the question about do they have to return it if it's Be'en, a possible difference between the Mishnah that sounds like they don't return it and the Brisa that sounds like they do, could be the question of whether Rishus Yoresh is like Rishus Lokeach or not. Um, and it'd be talking after Yeyush, but could it be dated whether it's considered a Shini Rishus? Or it could be, according to Rami Bar Chama, the difference before before Yeyush and after Yeyush. After Yeyush, it's Yeyush and Shini Rishus. Rishus Yoresh, Rishus Lokeach. Before Yeyush, obviously, it does not matter and they would have to return it. Okay. Now, Ravada Bar-Ava taught the teaching of Rami Bar-Chama that Rishus Yorish is like Rishus Lokeach. Aha, on the following Brayta. Um, uh, Not a case of the father leaving over a gazela, but the father leaving over money that was, uh, he got, he, he got in, by charging interest. Now, again, money, uh, when you charge money in interest, the person is actually willingly paying it. It's just forbidden to charge it and to collect it and to pay it. Um, and it's not even clear what, that you would have to give it back. I mean, you transgressed, but ultimately the person willingly paid it. We're going to see that the Gemara is going to learn from a postage that the money has to be given back. So what happens, though, if this money, this interest money, was bequeathed to the children? The person died. So even though the children know that this is money that was earned through charging interest, they don't have an obligation to return it. It's not stolen. Fine. So Rami Barchama said, it's obvious to me that if it was still considered to be in the possession of the uh, father, then you would have to give it back. So this is not an issue of like Yehosh and Shina Rishos, that's not what we're talking about. Um, but what we're talking about is, is that it's in, you know, that it's no longer under, seen as still within the father's estate. You know, it's now, it's now owned by the children and it's a different possession and therefore it doesn't have to be given back. But if it was considered to be a continuity, then it would have to be given back. Um, okay, so, um, Rav Amar Rav says, I could really tell you that the that the uh, that it's considered um, the rishus of the yoresh is um, not considered like a purchaser and is a continuation of the father's uh, possession and domain. But okay, but then so therefore, why wouldn't the kids have to give it back? Because let's look at the pasuk that actually is the basis of giving back ribis money. The pasuk says, "Do not take from him, you know, ribis." Two different words for ribis. Um, 
Ahadrlay, and from that we read, Kihechi, the end of the Basque is Vikeachimach, your brother should live with you. Ahadrlay, give it back to him, Kihechi de Nikhe Bahadech, that in order that you should he should live together with you. So it's really funny, there's no real clear Pasik you give the ribbons back, but from verse of Vikeachimach, Chazal learn that there's an idea to try to restore the balance and to give it back. All right, but that's not like it's not your money and it's a stolen object. It's kihechi adinichi badach that you should live well together. So the Torah is commanding the person that lent the money not to the son. So the basic idea being that this is a personal obligation of the one who charged interest. It's not like the money is ill-gotten gains, and therefore, as long as it hasn't gone out of his possession, you know, you have to give it back. That might would be a question of or not. No, he actually, it's his money. It was freely given to him, the person who tried to invest. But he has an obligation to restore the situation, a personal obligation, and it only applies to him and not to his children. Okay. Um, That is how uh, this issue of returning the ribis might have nothing to do with the issue about whether the children, even if it's all considered to like be the money still is in the same domain and under the same ownership, but still the obligation is only a personal one on the person who actually charged ribis. Okay, now the Gemara is just going to, now we have two understandings of where Rami, of where Rami Barham's teaching was applied to, whether was applied to um, our Mishnah, whether it was applied to the Brighton. Now the Gemara thing is going to discuss whether one implies the other or not. So let's take a look. Um, if you apply the principle of so to Rishish to the Brighta about the idea of returning ribis, then you would certainly apply it to the Mishnah. Now, why is not so clear? What Rashi says is because the simple sense of the Mishnah is that the Gzela is still around. Be'end. So the only reasonable explanation of that Mishnah is Yehus and Kini Rishos, which is Rishos Yorish like Rishos Lokeach. So the Breitah doesn't need this fancy idea of Rishos Yorish like Rishos Lokeach. It could just be that the whole, the whole obligation of Ribbis is only on the person who charged it. So if you're going to introduce the idea on the Breitah, then you would certainly apply it to the Mishnah. The Mishnah is much more cause for this principle. But if you teach it on the Mishnah, where, again, it's really, you understand why it's necessary, because the simple sense of the Mishnah is that the Gzela is Be'en, so it only makes sense with Yehosh and Shini Rishos, that you don't have to return it. But when it comes to this Brisa about um, about Ribbis, that might have nothing to do with Rishos Yehosh, Kushos Lokeach. Fundamentally, the Ribbis money is yours. Is the, it belongs to the person who charged it interest, you know, even though he violated, and the idea to return it is just a personal obligation on him and not on his children. Okay, so those are different ways of understanding where Rami Barchama's teaching was said in reference to what? Tanarabanan. Now we're still going to be working with these two ideas um, of Rami Barchama and pri- primarily also of um, Rav Chizda about uh, when your, uh, the uh, children are obligated or not obligated if they eat the gzela that the father left them before or after Yehosh. Tanarabanan. Of Somebody who stole and fed it to the kids, they're exempt from paying. That's okay. That's the first part of our Mishnah. If it was left in front of them, and this again, the simple meaning here is that the gzela is be'en, that the object is still around. The adults, children, if they're adult children, they have to return it. If they're minors, they don't. So let's first talk about why the adults have to return it. Well, it's be'en. 
And, um, you know, if you hold Rishus Yorish is like Rishus Lokeach, then it would be before Yeyush, okay? That, th- there's always a re- reason to return it if it's banned. Either it's before Yeyush or it's after Yeyush and you hold Rishus Yorish is not like Rishus Lokeach, so there's no Shina Rishus. But one way or another, there's always a scenario where you'll have to return it banned, and that's when the adult children have to, but not the minor children. Why not? Because even though it's my object, you know, it's like, a, you know, it's my uh, um, iPhone there that is sitting um, in this person's house and his, that he died, and his minor children now, but now are around. But but it's my iPhone. Why can't I go and take it? So that's going to be the principle of mekabel meedus baldin. I still have to bring it to court to prove that it was my iPhone, and therefore I cannot do that if I cannot. If you know the person I'm te- bringing the testimony against is not able to defend himself. So the same way, if the person wasn't around, you know, person has a right to face their accuser. Um, you know, you couldn't pr- proceed with a court case without their being present. We'll see exceptions about that coming up. Um, but similarly, if the uh, other side are minors, that also is not fair, and you would have to wait till they become adults. So that's why, as minors, they do not have to give it back. We will have the court case when they grow up. Um, um, okay. Uh, now, in the case of the adult children, if they say, We don't know the uh, arrangement that our father made with you. It's true that this stolen object is in our possession, but, you know, maybe he paid you for it, and maybe... You allowed him to keep it, so in that case, Paturin, then in that case, they would be exempt. Um, so, um, so now, so Paturim Lisham, they don't have to, uh, Paturim, they're exempt. So the Gemara questions this. Wait, because they say we don't know, that exempts them. You definitely have this stolen object in their home. My iPhone is sitting in their home because they say, well, maybe my father made a deal with you. How does that get them out of it? They definitely, it's definitely my iPhone. Prove it if you want to keep it. So I'm a Rava. So Rava re- Interprets this. This is what it's saying. If the if the children say we actually do know that our father made an arrangement and that he paid you for it, in that case they are exempt because still it's possession is nine tenths of the law. So even though I can prove it used to be my iPhone, now it is in their possession. Um, and if you know, if I could prove. But you know, you know, uh, my iPhone uh, used to be mine, and you're, it's in your possession. And you say you bought it from me, you would be believed. So here too, I say the father stole it, and the kids say, "Yeah, but we bought it." And so the kids are going to be believed. Okay. So now the man says like this. Um, okay. Tanya we turn another price. Somebody who steals and feeds to the kids, they're exempt. Okay, that we know. First part of our Mishnah. If they he left it in front of them and they consumed it, whether adults or minors, they're obligated. Now this is quite strange. So the Gemara says, because here it's not that the gzela is banned; it's been destroyed. So the only way that the children would have to pay is that they've incurred obligation. It's not the obligation of their father. So the Gemara says, how could minors be obligated if they went ahead and they ate this gzela? If a minor went ahead and damaged property, you're exempt. There's no liability for a minor, right? It's not my object is banned and I'm trying to retrieve it. It's not the obligation of the father. This actually, I'm trying to make the minor pay for eating it, but they don't have any liability. So this makes absolutely no sense the way we taught it. So Amar Papa Hachikam, here's how you have to read this brighter. He niach lifname v'adayin 
Ayin lo achalum. The word achalum is basically a mistake. Okay, it, does, it, it means it's still around and they haven't eaten it. So it's exactly like the previous brayta. If if they if, if the father fed it to them, they're exempt. If the exile is still around, then this brayta teaches whether adults or minors they're obligated. So as opposed to the previous brayta that said when it's still around, minors are not obligated. This says minors are obligated. So we will see. This is a debate of whether you can accept testimony, at least in some cases, um, not in the presence of Baldin or when the Baldin is a minor. Okay, but we're all talking about the Gzalas around, and that is the issue at stake here. Um, okay, Amar Rava, says Rava. We're now at the last of the narrow lines. Their father left in front of them a borrowed cow. The father borrowed the cow. And they are aware of this. So when the pharaoh bothers it, let's say he borrowed it for a year, he made an arrangement, and then he died. So he basically has the rights to use it for a year. Um, and, um, you know, borrow, one way to think of borrowing is a matana, you know, leguf leperos lizman. The same way I can gift you something or I could actually gift you something for a limited period of time. I could also gift you its use for a limited period of time. That's what a she'ela is. So he would inherit those rights he has to use that object to his children. Mesa ein chayavim ba'on seha. But this is very interesting. If the, fa- if the cow dies, not due to any fault of their own, it drops dead. As a normal shoel, you are obligated even ba'onsin, even if the object gets destroyed, not due to any fault of your own. But here, this bright is assuming that that obligation is assumed only by the person who borrowed it. So the property rights to the object can be passed down. The same way when a father dies, the children inherit the property he owns. When the father dies, the children have the property rights he has in this cow. But the obligation to pay is a personal obligation assumed by the father and not by the children. So they actually would be exempt. Now, kisvurim shel aviyamhi. Let's say they didn't realize that it was borrowed and they assumed it was their father's. You know, it was just a cow that the father had had around. What did they know that it was borrowed? Utfachua vachaluha, and they slaughtered it and ate it. So, mishalming dimei basar They pay for cheap meat, meaning you figure out how much the meat was actually worth in the open market. And they would pay, uh, as Rashi points out, they pay um, two-thirds of the cost. Now, um... Um, excuse me. Um, yes, two-thirds of the cost. Now, what's the logic here? The logic is, well, we already said they're not chayev because of a shoah. They didn't assume the obligation. How about make them obligated as a mazik? They watered this guy's cow and they ate it. But they did not do it intentionally to damage. And not only that, we've learned like Adamuad La'olam, if somebody slipped and broke something, he also didn't intentionally damage and he has to go ahead and pay for it. But in this case, they, their relationship to it was that's still re- knowing that it's somebody else's object and accidentally breaking it, okay, or being negligent. I borrowed your object and I forgot and I thought it was mine. All those cases, it starts with the idea that my relationship to it, you know, was as, as an other and therefore when I break it, I'm a mazik. In this case, they had all the rights to assume it was their father's. It was, among, you know, it was in their property when their father died and therefore their relationship to it was like they ate it with permission, as it were, or not certainly as a mazik. And therefore, the only thing that you can make them pay for is the benefit that they receive. So not the actual market value of the meat, but they got a nice full meal. So the way you assess what's the benefit of a full meal is this somehow this uh, sort of calculus of paying two-thirds of the value. That's the principle there. Okay, now, 
If their father left them property that has liens on it, then they have to pay. Now, the Gemara is going to ask which case this goes on. Some apply this to the first case, when it was borrowed and then, you know, something happened to it. The question of Chiv Onsim by a She'ela. And some teach about the last case, about when they slaughtered it and ate it. So let's take a look. Upliga um, Papa. The one who teaches it on the first case of Shoel, which uh, when an accident happened where the cow just dropped dead, would certainly apply it to the case, last case and argues on Rav Papa. Let's just read this and then we'll explain what all this means. Um, 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 but if you only teach it about the last case, about eating, slaughtering it and eating it, but when the first case about the about it died, you would not be obligated even if the father left uh, left real estate. Why? And that would be consistent with Rav Papa. So we'll just read Rav Papa and then we'll go back and explain all of this. Because Rav Papa says, so the principle is you cannot do some if you do some an, an act that is a that that's chayiv misa then you don't incur monetary obligations that come together with that act that's the principle of kimli bedrabim day so if somebody had a um, st- um, uh, stolen a cow before Shabbos and on Shabbos he slaughtered it and we'll remember that geneva with tviha is chayiv four or five then you have to actually pay the four or five why shekvar chayiv begeneva. The obligation of the principal in the cave came when you stole it on Thursday. And the fact that now you slaughtered it and now you have to pay, you know, go from two to, th- to four to five, that's a knas, the, of the, th- the four or five. And the principle is actually you can pay a knas, a knas that you incurred because a knas is a chiddish, a knas that you incur, a, a monetary fine, you can be obligated even at, even when you're chay of misa, even when you do an act that's chay of misa. We don't say kimle by a knas. So in that case, you would pay four or five. However, um, uh, where were we? Haisapar Shu'ulalo, now we're getting to what's relevant to us. If you, the guy had borrowed the cow on a Thursday and Vitavcha Shabbos and slaughtered it on Shabbos, Pater, in that case, you're exempt. Because the Isr Shabbos and the stealing it through the slaughtering it came at the same time. Okay, so what does this mean? So, you're not going to be chayiv here anyway for four or five. It's not a, it's, there's never really a geneva. Okay, it started off as a sheula. So the question though is, why aren't you chayiv when you slaughter it on Shabbos? So forget geneva and that. Why aren't you chayiv when you slaughter on Shabbos for mazik? Well, you're not chayiv for mazik or call it geneva or whatever. But anyway, it's not a geneva. And then a shechita. The shechita might be the geneva. But anyway, why are you not chayiv for that? You're not chayiv because that's a, a, a monetary obligation that comes at the time that you did a chilusha. So that's why you're not high for the shechita. Great. None of that is relevant to us. What's relevant to us is that Rav Papa is also saying you're not chayv as a shoel. Remember, you borrowed it on Thursday. On Shabbos it died. Let's forget about the fact that you slaughtered it. Fine. You have no chayv for mazik or for geneva on Shabbos. It happened through chil Shabbos. Fine. Nothing. But pay because you're a showell and the cow that you borrowed died. So the fact that he says you don't have to pay shows that Rav Papa says that the obligation of the showell comes when the damage happens, not when the object was borrowed. You borrowed an object on Thursday. It died on Shabbos. 
When do you become, uh, when do we say your obligations, uh, you know, to, to re- do restitution began? So the easiest thing is to say what Rapapa said. You, when, it, when, it, when it dies, you assume the obligation. At that moment that it died on Shabbos, that's when you're obligated. Oh, okay. But that came at the time of Chilu Shabbos. So, What's, how would you say the other way? The other way you would say it is actually quite simple. You would say, when you borrow the cow, you assume the obligation to return the cow. That obligation, when I borrowed from Ruvain a cow on Thursday, on Thursday, I now owe Ruvain a cow. If the cow is still alive and I return it, I exempt myself from the obligation. If the cow died, died on Shabbos, I don't care when the cow died, my obligation to pay him started on Thursday. I just can't exempt myself from it because the cow's already dead. So that's the position that argues on Rapapa. So the question of Rapapa is, when is a shoel obligated when something happens to the object? The moment that it happens to the object or from the moment it was borrowed? How is all of this relevant to us? Well, that was a lot, okay? Now we have to go back and figure out how it's relevant to us. Because the, ki- the father borrowed the cow and he had real estate. The real estate would have liens on it. And now he died and the kids, and, the, and then the, after he died, the, the cow died. Does, can the person who lent him the cow collect from the real estate? So it depends. When did the obligation begin? If the obligation began when the father was around, not like with Papa when the, the, when the cow was borrowed, then at the moment the, cow, the father borrowed the cow, the, the owner of the cow got liens on the father's property for, the, for getting back his cow. The father assumed the obligation to pay a cow. Now the father died. Then the cow died. Okay, Yeshua Koach, the kids are not chayiv and owns him. It doesn't matter. I have liens already against the father's estate for the cow, for when the father was alive. The, and there, that estate, that property is still there. I will collect my liens from the property. So that is how you could teach the Mishnah that if the father left real estate, which has liens, then then the children do have to pay. You could teach it on the first case about the borrowed cow that died if you disagree with Rav Papa. And if you say that a obligation of the borrower begins from the moment it's borrowed. Okay, that's how you would teach it at the first part of the Mishnah. You would actually reject Rav Papa. However, if you agree with Rav Papa, then even in that scenario where the father borrowed it and there was real estate, there were no liens on the property. There was no obligation until the cow died. And therefore, when the cow died, it was only the kids. So, and, and the kids didn't assume the obligation. So if you agree with Rav Papa, the father leaving real estate would not obligate them when the cow dies. And you would only teach this issue of achrayus matters in the second case. And the second case is when they thought it was their father's and they slaughtered it. Now, we have to explain that. Okay, so the question about the first case, about when the cow dies, does that matter if the father left real estate? That depends whether the obligation begins at the moment of borrowing or at the moment that the damage happened. But everybody agrees that this principle of achrayus would explain the, would be relevant to the second case of the Mishnah. When the kids thought it belonged to their father and they slaughtered it and they ate it, if the father left them property, then they don't pay two-thirds of the cost, then they pay the full cost. And it's really not at all clear what leaving property has to do with this, right? There's no liens on the property when he borrowed it. We already said that. So what the heck does if they slaughtered it and ate it, do they pay full cost or two-thirds have to do with leaving property? 
Rashi makes it sound like it's a question of how much do we see the children as a continuation of the father, sort of like with just Yoish Kirishos Lokeach. But in this action of slaughtering it and eating it, if the father, for example, forgot that it was borrowed and slaughtered it and ate it, we'd call him a mazik. You have a responsibility to remember that it's borrowed, okay? And you don't, you destroyed somebody's object, you have to pay for it. So the kids, do these see them as a continuation of the father? Well, if there's real estate, then we sort of, again, this you know, just shows a sense of continuity and so on. And you know, with real estate, then we see them as a continuation in the same way the father would be obligated, they would be. But if there's not real estate, then we see it as a new parsha, and therefore they are exempt. All right, that was a lot of stuff there about this question about the borrowed cow. Now we are finally going to go back to the earlier issue about if the gzela is be'en and whether you can collect it from the ketanim or not. So let's take a look. Tanu Rabbanan, a rabbi's taught. You should return the gzela that you stole. If you remember, that was, of course, the, mish, the pasuk we quoted earlier for the principle of Shinoi. What is that idea that you stole teaching? That you have to turn it, return it if it's around the way it was stolen. From here they said, That one who steals and feeds and feeds his kids is exempt from paying. So this is interesting. That, you know, what exact principle is this teaching us? So Tosa says, you know, this works better not like Rav Chizda. That this is actually Rav Chizda, the Gemara said, what's the reason for Rav Chizda that it's only after Yehush? Well, because it happened after Yehush, you know, therefore you don't really have control over it, and therefore when it gets consumed after Yehush, the second party is not obligated. But here, it just says, no, the Pesach says, only when it's still around. So what does that mean? You only return it when it's still in the original form. It can't mean for the Goslin himself. Goslin himself, even if it's destroyed, has to pay back. Ah, but for his kids, the puzzle is teaching you that if it's not around, they don't have to pay it back. Okay, that they don't, even, even if they were the ones that ate it, that is not considered to be chayev, not as a gazel, not as a mazik, and they would be putter. So it's nice to use that pasuk to explain the Mishnah that your putter, the kids are exempt, even if they ate it before Yehosh, not like Rav Chizda, we have a special pasuk that teaches us that. Okay, but that's the first part of the Mishnah. Now, and now we are finally going to get back to this question about it being ban. If it was in front of the, if, if he left it to them, and, and whether they're adults or children, they're obligated. But in the name of Sumchis, who is a student of Rav Meir, they said, no, only adults, not minors. You cannot bring a case against minors. Now, the Gemara is going to go through a whole discussion of can you bring a case against minors? You know, and, you know, accept testimony and so on. What I want to point out at the beginning is that there's a, normally, of course, we would never say that if somebody came and said, I have a star that says, you know, where I have, I have witnesses that say, you know, that their father lent me a $10,000 and I want to bring it. Of course, we would say, no, you got to wait till the kids are adults and that they can defend themselves. You know, maybe we would appoint an apotropist, but, you know, somebody to represent them. But why would we do that? That would only be to their detriment. You know, there's whole discussions, but you could not just bring, you know, witnesses if you had some claim against an estate and the other side was minors. However, here it's different because here there's a, it's, it seems like it's understood that this object was known to be yours. Maybe it was even known that the father stole it. So in that case, it's a little more complicated. It's not like, you know, you have your money, you have your estate, we all assume that you own it, and now I'm coming with some claim that your father owes me a million dollars. 
No, it starts with a different orientation. You're holding on to an object that was mine. Now, I have to maybe prove it because you could claim your father bought it or who knows what, but it starts with an orientation that you're holding on to a sto- an object that was stolen from me. And that presumably is known, you know, and therefore the question is, well, maybe then we should just let me retrieve it, right? And maybe the kids don't have a right to hold on to it. And if they have counterproof, let them bring it when they become adults. So let's take a look. That seems to be why... Um, why the rabbis would argue on Sumchis and say that you could bring, um, you know, you could actually prosecute the case. Now we're going to have some some actual case law about this. Bar Chamuah de Rabbi Yirmiya, the son of the father-in-law of Rabbi Yirmiya, Tarek Galiba Ape, sort of slammed the door in the face of Rabbi Yirmiya, of property, based the Rabbi Yirmiya, of Rabbi Yirmiya. Now what happened was, was that Rabbi Yirmiya's father-in-law died, um, Rabbi Yirmiya's, uh, you know, uh, brother-in-law, his uh, wife's brother, uh, his, um, you know, who inherited the father-in-law's estate, uh, he said, this is my property, and he wouldn't let Rabbi Yirmiya in. Rabbi Yirmiya was claiming that he had purchased the property from the father, and Rabbi Yirmiya wanted to go and get uh, and seize the property, the, you know, the house or whatever it was, and the child, he was underage, was preventing him from entering and saying, no, my father didn't sell it to you, it's mine. He came to Rabbi Avin to, to prosecute this case or just, you know, to try to get the property. Rabbi Avin said, So, um, uh, you know, the kid is demanding what's his. The father died. It's presumed to now belong to the kid. So you can't go ahead and just seize it. I'll bring witnesses that I've established my ownership when the father was alive. Do we accept witnesses? We're now at the top of not in the presence of the litigant, of the other side. So you can't go ahead and do that. He's a minor. So the minor says, Hello? Is that not true? We've got the Mishnah, the Brita, that says that you can retrieve a stolen object from kids even if they're minors. So you see, you can prosecute a case against minors. So he said back, you know, to, to um, who was this again? To Rav uh, I think it was. Hold on. He said back to um, Reb Yirmiyak said. He said back to Reb Yirmiyak. He said, um, he said, yeah, but Sumcha says you're not allowed to prosecute a case against minors. Um, so Amar, so Reb Yirmiyak said, You're going to fold up, you're going to like ignore the, every, the, the majority opinion and say that, oh, we're going to go like Sumcha, you're not allowed to prosecute it. To take away from me my property. So why all of a sudden are we worrying about Sumcha? So now at this stage, it sounds like Reb Yirmiyak is making and claim we can always prosecute a case against minors. Not prosecute, whatever. We bring a case, you know, a monetary case against minors. But let's take a look. We're not done yet. You know, as this was sort of being litigated or discussed, debated whether you could actually bring the case at all, the matter came in front of Rabbi Yavahu. Amr Rabbi Yoshai, Rabbi Amr, so Rabbi Yovahu said, Losh Milukhuhat Rabbi Yosef Barchama, Amr Rabboshaya. Did you, have you not heard the teaching of Rabbi Yosef Barchama, the name of Rabboshaya? Dhamr Rabbi Yosef Barchama, Rabboshaya, Tinuk Shetakapa, about a yard, little station Chavero. If a infant, whatever, a young child, took his, you know, underage, took his servants, and went into his, you know, somebody else's field, you know, he went to his next door neighbor's house, and he had his children, he had his servants there, you know, to back him up. And um, um, uh, and and he you know and he built a fence around it and he made, laid claim to it. He basically said, "Look, I, this is all this is mine." You know, he was claiming that it belonged to him. 
Um, what's the halacha? We don't say we wait till he grows up. You immediately give the field back to the person who, we, who, who to whom it belongs. And when he grows up, then we'll bring Adam and then we'll deal with it when he grows up. So this seems to be you uh, do adjudicate a case against a minor because you're restoring the field. So that should be a, show you that we do adjudicate the case. So let's see what it says. Um... Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, excuse me. It said, well, hold on a second. I said that right. So in this case, we're willing to deal with a case against minors and retrieve this property, um, whereas not in the case of Rebbe Yirmiya. Obviously, so, so if you're, excuse me, so if you're willing to do it here, then, you know, um, then um, um, why should we not be willing to adjudicate this case here with the minor, says Rebbe Yirmiya, or says, uh, you know, um, says Rebbe Yavau to defend Rebbe Yirmiya. But there's an obvious huge difference here, and now we're finally getting to the heart of the matter. So the Gemara says like this, Me, um, how can you compare them? Over there, we're taking the property out of the hand, you know, of this guy, kid who went with his uh, servants and seized the field, the next, you know, the next door neighbor's field, because he has no, you know, relationship. He has no chazaka, no presumption of ownership that it was not in his father's possession that he now inherited. So here it's basically like this kid grabbed this property. Get out of here. You want to claim you own it? Well, you, the kid, wait till you're an adult and you'll bring it. But we restore the situation to the way it was, you know, before you, you made this type of claim. Um, that's that case. We just restore the situation to the, uh, to, because to the person who has mochzak in the field. But in the case of uh, Rabbi Yirmiya, you know, where, where his uh, uh, brother-in-law basically is the presumed heir of the estate. In that case, the, the, the status quo is that it's under the possession or the presumed status quo under the possession of his brother-in-law. In that case, lo, we wouldn't say it, which basically means that do you deal with a case when a minor is involved? It's like we want to keep things sort of at the status quo. So the issue, and then if we want to deal with a minor, you know, we'll wait till the minor becomes an adult. So the issue by the Gzela is, on the one hand, you could say, look, everybody knew this was my object. That's the status quo. So even if the kids are minors, I should be able to prove it's my object and retrieve it. That's the position of the Rabbanon. That's why there they say we will do, do it with minors. Where Sumcha says, no, right now the status quo, it's by metaltolin, and, you know, things that are chattel, it fundamentally is assumed to be in the possession of the person whose possession it's in, owned by the position whose possession it's in. So even though we knew it was yours, the status quo is that it's in the possession of the kid, and therefore, you, if you want to change that status quo, you have to wait till the, till the kid um, grows up. In the case of Rebbe, uh, Rebbe Yirmiya, um, in that case, it was in the, by land, it's pres- presumed to be in the possession of the, you know, person who owned it prior, and that person died, so now it's presumed to be in the possession um, of the kid. And since that's the status quo, sorry, Rebbe Yirmiya, you cannot bring witnesses against the status quo. You can't bring witnesses against a kid if, you know, if that's coming to disrupt the status quo. And finally, in the case where the kid went and seized the next-door neighbor's field, so we push away the kid, and we say, you can't change the status quo, and if you want to, wait till you're an adult. So common denominator is, we keep the status quo, and if you want to change it, you wait till the kid is an adult. And the debate of Sumchus and the Chachamim seems to be a debate of how we consider, what we consider the status quo to be. Okay, let's do a little bit more. 
You will sometimes accept witnesses not in the presence of the other side. What do you mean? We don't do that. Can you really do that? Understood that he was talking about a case. Basically, in a case when there was a real urgency and you might lose your, your evidence without it. You know, the guy who's bringing the case is sick and sick here meaning, you know, might die. So he has a right to have his case heard even if the other guy isn't around. Or the witnesses might die. Um, or the witnesses were going on a trip and you, they might not be able to be retrieved. So there would be some times in which we would allow it, but then it has an additional criteria. And the other side was give what, what they sent after him and said, you know, we have to bring this case right now. And um, because, because, you know, some, there's an urgency and the guy refused to show up. In that case, you know, he was, um, you know, he blew it. Normally we'll see later, you give him a long time before you start prosecuting, before you start doing the case not in his presence. But when there's this urgency, you know, he gets one warning and then you will go forward with the case. Tosus thinks, suggests that maybe that's or he did not come, but the simple reading is and he did not come. There's an urgency, you give the guy a chance, he has one chance to show up. If he doesn't, then you move on with it. Okay. You do accept witnesses, or at least there are times where you will. To me, it was explained that teaching that you began the court case, maybe he was there when you started it, and now you're trying to continue the case, and now he's refusing to come and to show up for the following of the proceedings. Okay, in that case, again, he's to blame. It's different than the previous case, because here you actually begin. It. So here his refusal to keep on, to come when summoned is enough to allow you to continue handling the case. Um, of a low bedina, but if you did not begin the case, so Mati Amale, he could actually say, no, you know, even I'm refusing to come because I want to go to the ma- major based in, in Yerushalayim. And people have the right to demand that they have their case heard by that major based in. So until this case started, his refusal, his non-coming actually would not allow you to prosecute the case because he could always say, I don't want it to be heard in this based in. Tosis has an interesting question. If that's just the right of the party being sued or even the right of the party suing, can they demand to go to based in or does that give too much power and the right of the party suing, because if they have the you know money to should do that, then they could basically threaten people and uh, you know get a settlement because people don't have the money to go to Yerushalayim and to defend themselves, which, as we know, is a general problem in the system in general. Okay, things like that about how people with the money that can last out court cases have much more of an advantage. Anyway, uh, Ihachi says the Gemara one minute. If the person has the right to demand to switch to the based in Agadol, so or to go there, even if they began the court case, he has the right to switch venues, which is a big chiddush. You would say, no, once you've accepted this venue, you can't switch it. But the Gemara says he has the right. So even if he doesn't show up, you know, he could say, I want to switch to go to the major based in. Um, not any venue, but the major based in. Um, and therefore, that would not give you a right to accept witnesses not in his presence. So the Gemara says... 
Um, we're talking that the court has given, given authority from the base in Hagadol, so, um, you know, um, that, um, that they should deal with this case. Okay, so in that case, now, if that's true, then even before they were Poteach Bedin, you know, he couldn't go to the base in Hagadol because the base in Hagadol said that this court should hear it. But anyway, it's not exactly clear how the Gemara is drawing that line, but presumably, um, you know, um, before he opened the case, then that, that court didn't have authority, but once he opened it and the court had authority and maybe they were backed by the based in, then he could no longer switch venues. And then his refusal to come um, gives us a right to continue the proceedings without him. Okay. Um, Amarar. Amarav. We'll just do a little bit more. You can do Kimashtar. Star is signed and you want to just uh, validate the witnesses. Either the witnesses themselves are testifying to it, that signature or other people are around. You don't need, you know, who knows the signature. You don't need the Balden there. You already have a signed document. You are not starting, you know, some new case. You're just proving that the, the signatures are genuine. That's not like a din against somebody, and you can do that. Um, you can't. Let me explain you the reason of Yochanan. You will warn the owners by an agoring ox, and then they don't watch it. So the ox, the owner of the ox has a right to come and stand on his ox, again, you know, when his ox is being testified against, you have a right to face your accusers, even if you're only accusing your money. So this is the principle of that you don't do a court case against somebody when they're not present. Of course, that's nice to quote the Pasuk, but the point here really is, come on, the star already has accepted witnesses on it, and you are just validating it. Um, Rava, and thus we'll read this last line for now. You can do it. Okay? And then the Gemara will continue on. And But the reason you can do it is obviously Kim Shtars is fundamentally rabbinic. Doraisa, any signed star, is assumed to be genuine. And therefore, it's really not like you're opening a court case against somebody um, when you already have a signed star. Okay, we will end here.